Tuesday morning, July 20th, 1909. The quarters of Captain Charles Murphy, Grant Avenue, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Mrs. Murphy recounts the fateful events of that morning. Minnie and I were standing just inside the door. Lieutenant Hand was standing just outside with his left arm raised and his hand resting against the door. Without speaking, O'Neill drew a revolver and fired four times under Lieutenant Hand's arms. Minnie fell and died instantly. My dress was burned by the powder. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also, I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Okay, enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Minnie Charbonneau is born in 1883 in Vermont to Louis and Esther Charbonneau, who farm near Essex Junction, Vermont. That's not far from the Canadian border, and in fact, the Charbonneaux are descended from French Canadians, like many Vermonters. The spelling of their name is anglicized from Charbonneau, C-H-A-R-B-O-N-N-E-A-U, to just how it sounds, and not nearly as pretty, S-H-A-R-B-E-N-O. In the 1900 U.S. Census, Minnie is 17, and there are three younger siblings. My guess is there are more who have already left home in 1900. At some point, Minnie works as a domestic servant for an officer's family at Fort Ethan Allen, located near Essex Junction, Vermont. 
I had never heard of Fort Ethan Allen Army Post, so I wikied it. It was established as a cavalry post in 1894. I wonder if they were worried about an invasion from Canada. Fort Ethan Allen Army Post closed down in 1944. According to Wiki, part of it was used to enlarge the campus of St. Michael's College. Parts of the post have been commercially developed and part comprises Camp Johnson, the headquarters of the Vermont National Guard. While there are some newer structures on the original post, notably college housing and Vermont public broadcasting systems, the original buildings are put to good use. Various businesses occupy what used to be horse barns, barracks have been converted to apartments, and the officers' row houses are condominiums. If you look at the pictures, it's very pretty. Lots of trees and red brick buildings, known as the fort to the locals. Officer's Row is where Minnie would have worked. Her murderer gets lots of attention in the press, but our victim, Minnie Charbonneau, does not. Sometimes she's just called the French maid. But it looks like some of the reporters at least tried to get more personal information about her. Three months ago, Miss Minnie Charbonneau, tired of the quiet life of her country home near Essex Junction, Vermont, where her parents, farmer folk, a French-Canadian extraction live. She came here with the wife of J.A. McCartney, a private in the 15th Cavalry. Miss Charbonneau took employment at the post as a domestic. Listeners, another account differs slightly saying four months ago, Minnie came out to Kansas with an officer's family she worked for at Fort Ethan Allen. She recently was employed as a cook by Mrs. C. N. Murphy. Early upon arrival of the pretty little French girl, Listeners, she's a 26-year-old woman and born in Vermont. And at the post, she made the acquaintance of a handsome prison guard, Private Charles O'Neill. It was a love affair, typical of people of their station. Oh, please, people of their station? Really, a little snobby there. A reporter in Leavenworth, Kansas, I don't think he has anything to be snobby about. The girl will be remembered by many who patronized the Coliseum skating rink as a pretty brunette with very dark skin who used to wear bright colored clothes and skated a good deal with soldiers. Listeners, a little condescending again, not girl, woman. And I think there's a little judgment going on too. Skated a good deal with soldiers. Considering what happens, it's almost like they're blaming her a little for what happened. Actually, we will see some of that attitude play out in what happens. The focus will be on the murderer and not the victim. And honestly, we still see that today. Here's my take on Minnie Charbonneau. 
independent, hardworking, fun-loving woman, only in her 20s, with a sense of adventure, who enjoys her freedom and her social life. I've described Fort Leavenworth and the city of Leavenworth before. However, I think I'll go over that a little, since I think it's been a while. Leavenworth is a small city, about 45 minutes from Kansas City. It is bordered on the north by Fort Leavenworth, on the east by the Missouri River, on the south by Lansing, Kansas, and on the west by rural Leavenworth County. For better or for worse, doing time in Leavenworth is synonymous with serving a sentence in prison. In 1910, the famous Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary is there and a major military disciplinary barracks or prison. There's also a good-sized county jail in Leavenworth and the state prison a few miles south in Lansing. If you look at a map, Kansas is one of the rectangle states right in the middle of the continental United States. The northeast corner of the state looks like it has a bite taken out of it because the Missouri River cuts off that corner of the land and puts it in Missouri to the east. Leavenworth is kind of in the middle of the bite. The population of the Leavenworth area at this time is about 20,000, roughly half what it is now. In reality, the town is still in 1909 on the edge of the frontier. Oklahoma has only been a state for a couple of years. It will be a couple more before New Mexico and Arizona become states. But the people of Leavenworth try hard to present an image of civility and culture. Officers and their families are considered part of what they call high society in Leavenworth. The enlisted men are on social footing with working class people of Leavenworth. Many would be considered a respectable working class woman, like shop clerks and typists and seamstresses. Minnie is described in Minnie's relationship is described in two ways. She and Charles were engaged, even reportingly getting married within a few weeks. I think this is the story according to Charles O'Neill. He tells a reporter that they met the first Sunday in April and were to marry that very August. Other accounts go more like this. Quote, O'Neill was a frequent caller. He became deeply infatuated. It is said the girl tired of his company. Unquote. I've got to go with the latter, especially considering what happened. I think Charles O'Neill is a stalker. So, of course, I got sidetracked and looked into stalking a little. One of the clearest overviews I found was from www.legaldictionary.net. Stalking is a pattern of repeated behavior that includes unwanted attention, contact, harassment, or other conduct towards a specific person, calling frequently. Stalking behaviors may be committed in person, by following the victim, or by monitoring and 
harassing the victim electronically. Of course, that wouldn't be what was happening to many, but there might have been a lot of phone calls. They do have a phone at that time. Both men and women are victims of stalking all over the world. Stalking behavior encompasses a wide variety of actions, but nearly all acts of stalking incite fear in the victim. The main elements of stalking include repeated unwanted attention and harassment directed at a specific person, causing him to fear harm or for his life. Many stalkers engage in more than one type of stalking behavior, such as repeated and unwanted communications, following the victim to work, school, home, or other places where they frequently visit, making threats to the victim, either directly or indirectly, making threats to the victim's family, friends, co-workers, or even pets, repeatedly sending the victim unwanted gifts. The site mentions several types of stalkers, which I never thought about different types of stalkers. The discussion is very interesting. If you're interested, it's a good website. I'll put the link in the show notes. Obligatory, not an expert in psychology, but I think Charles O'Neill's type is the rejected stalker. The rejected stalker acts out of feelings of jealousy Overdependence and humiliation. The rejected stalker is commonly the most intrusive and tenacious type of stalker and is most likely to use fear, intimidation, and violence. Private Charles Wesley O'Neill, 24, calls on Minnie Charbonneau, 26 at the quarters of Captain and Mrs. Charles Ann Murphy, where Minnie is the maid, on the 20th of July, 1909. That's a Tuesday. I couldn't find the exact address of the Murphy quarters, but the newspapers did say officer quarters on Grant Avenue. So if you know the area, Grant Avenue is where the main gate of Fort Leavenworth is. Driving south off post, it becomes North 7th Street in Leavenworth. I'm pretty sure the Murphy House is one of the long row of big duplex houses on the west side of Grant Avenue. They're really big. Two-story, full attics, red brick with big porches on each end. There's a vintage postcard site, www.cardcow.com, that shows what the quarters looked like about that time. For free, I can put a not very good quality image out there on the website, so I will. If you're interested in vintage postcards, check their site out. They have some interesting items for sale. I'll put the link in the show notes. Anyway, the quarters are spacious, so I think many may live with the Murphys. I'm not sure what the etiquette would be for calling on her, I confess, I did not watch Downton Abbey. 
pretty much all I watch is true crime and sitcoms when I need some mindless drivel. But I did watch Upstairs Downstairs in the 70s, which I think is a similar British series. Anyway, in Upper Cross London, I don't think Charles would be coming to the front door to court the maid. But this is Kansas. If I'm Mrs. Captain Murphy, I would feel a need to watch out for my maid's welfare and reputation. So I would want her suitors to come to the front door, not be sneaking in through the back door. Now, I've never had a maid sigh, but I think I'm right, because that is what happens on the Monday of July 20th, 1909. Private Charles O'Neill comes up onto the big front porch and knocks on the door. Minnie, as the maid, is, of course, answering the door. Mrs. Murphy, her son Freddie, and her sister, Miss Goodwin, are also at home. Charles tells Minnie that he has heard rumors that she recently attended a theatrical production with another soldier. Now, in another account, it says, was seen dancing with, maybe at the Coliseum Skating Rink, which, if you're familiar with Leavenworth, was located at the corner of Fifth and Oak. And from reading about it, it was a pretty happening place. Here's the account in the Leavenworth Times. The girl denied the charges. Then the big soldier made threats. Okay, he's five foot nine inches tall or 175 centimeters. Really not that big. He went away. O'Neill came to the city and purchased a revolver fitted to the use of the army ammunition. He took a box of ammunition and with his loaded weapon returned to renew the quarrel. At the display of the gun, the girl screamed and ran into the house. Mrs. Murphy came to her rescue and sent her upstairs, preventing the pursuit by the soldier lover. Mrs. Murphy tells the following story of the events of the morning. Charles arrives about 11 a.m. Listeners, I really wanted to give Mrs. Murphy a first name. It bugs me that she's always just Mrs. Charles Murphy in all the newspapers. So I probably spent too much time on it, but it felt good to find it. It's Julie. Maiden name, Goodwin. Murphy. She's at home with her son, Freddie, and her sister, Miss Goodwin. Sorry, I didn't find her sister's first name. Quote, I was in a room upstairs the morning of July 20th when Minnie ran up from the dining room and said O'Neill was downstairs with a pistol and had threatened to kill her. We locked ourselves in the room and telephoned for help. When the soldiers came, O'Neill had gone. Later, they found him. Lieutenant R.C. Hand, the officer of the day, and Corporal C. Van Meter 
brought Private O'Neill to the house to be identified. I called Minnie. She said that O'Neill was the man who had been there and threatened her. Minnie returned to the dining room, and Lieutenant Hand recalled her to ask another question. Minnie and I were standing just inside the door. Lieutenant Hand was standing just outside with his left arm raised and his hand resting against the door. Without speaking, O'Neill drew a revolver and fired four times under Lieutenant Hand's arms. Minnie fell dead and died instantly. My dress was burned by the powder. Unquote. Looking at this account with today's eyes, I'm confident that Lieutenant Hand would be much more cautious about this situation today. He would make sure to have more backup, disarm Private O'Neill, and haul him away. Considering what happened, I think he realized that too. That's what he should have done. It's not what he did. From his point of view at the time, he is the assigned what's called officer of the day. Listeners, I can remember when my husband was the OD. Most of the time, it's mainly administrative duty. Fill out logs, make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be, all the guards are awake, doors are secure, maybe break up a fight in the barracks. But it's not a law enforcement assignment. Nowadays, law enforcement on an army post is handled by military police personnel, MPs. They are officially members of the military, but they're trained to be police officers. Today, Mrs. Murphy would call the provost marshal's office at Fort Leavenworth. That's who's in charge of safety and security on post, and a trained police officer from the military would respond. So Lieutenant Hand is told by the orderly that an officer's wife has called and some private is causing a disturbance at the officer's quarters, which are not far away. He saw O'Neill standing in front of the building. Lieutenant Hand approached the soldier. Have you been to Caffey, Captain Murphy's quarters? He asked. No replied the soldier. I just came in off the target range. Well, come along with me, and I'll have you identified anyway, answered the officer of the day. O'Neill followed him to the quarters of Captain Murphy. O'Neill was quiet, calm, and sober. There was nothing in his appearance of manner to excite the suspicion of the officer. Listeners reading this, you want to yell, get his gun, don't let him get behind you. Although there is Corporal Van Meter there for backup. I wonder if the orderly told the lieutenant that O'Neill had shown a revolver. I think that might have been unusual. Yes, people carrying guns, absolutely not unusual in Leavenworth, Kansas in 1909. Actually, today even, 
there are not many gun restrictions in Kansas, and I'm frankly just fine with that. Your podcast host has a 38 revolver. However, I don't think soldiers routinely carried sidearms. Some accounts say O'Neill pulled the gun from his waistband, which leads me to think he had it concealed. O'Neill did say he just came off the target range, but normally that means shooting rifles that are kept at the range for practice. If I had to guess, I think Lieutenant Hand probably had a sidearm in a holster on him. For sure, as we'll find out, the corporal had a rifle with him. This is 11 a.m. in July, Kansas, hot, broad daylight. It's a Tuesday. Lots of people are out and about. Grant Avenue is a busy street at Fort Leavenworth. Neighbors are out on their porches, so there are many witnesses to what happened. At the door of Captain Murphy's quarters, they met Mrs. Murphy, her little son, Freddie, and a sister, Miss Goodwin. The domestic, Miss Charbonneau, was called. Yes, that's him, said the girl as she stepped into the doorway. O'Neill, standing behind Lieutenant Hand, produced his revolver and fired directly under the arm of the officer, fatally wounding the girl, who died a few minutes later, just as medical aid reached her. The bullets took effect in the base of the brain and near the heart. Mrs. Murphy, with rare presence of mind, dropped behind a door and probably thereby saved her life. Whirling about, Lieutenant Hand grappled with the slayer. Seizing the revolver, he tried to wrest it from his hands twice the gun was fired in the struggle, both shots flying wild. Listeners, no word about little Freddy and Miss Goodwin. This could have been a much worse tragedy. Corporal Van Meter approached. Knock him in the head, exclaimed Lieutenant Hand, as he battled with the man who seemed possessed of the strength of a demon. Witnesses say that the corporal, instead of clubbing him with his rifle, stepped down off the porch, loading his piece as he went. For Pete's sake, what is the point of carrying a weapon if it's not loaded? And for the purpose, as he explained, of getting good range so that he could shoot. The officer had a hard time overpowering the prisoner, and the corporal finally came to his aid. I'll give up, gasped O'Neill. And one last mention of Minnie. Surgeons were sent for to attend to the girl, but she died just as one reached her. The girl was 20 years old. That's wrong. She's 26 and quite pretty. Her mother, who so far is known, is her only living relative, was telegraphed to at Essex Junction, Vermont, by Captain Murphy at noon. Private O'Neill is taken to the guardhouse. He escapes. Listeners, I'm always surprised at how often 
inmates escape in this area. I know I shouldn't be for over a hundred years. Three major correctional facilities have operated here. The U.S. Federal Big House, the state prison, and what's now the only maximum security facility for all male personnel in the U.S. military. In 1909, all three prisons had a death row. Just 20 years before, as I told the story in my first podcast at the Leavenworth Ripper, the county jail hanged a man. But it's a little jarring how often I run across prison escapes when I'm researching for the podcast in the local newspapers. Even recently, you can read about escapes. Sometimes these are walkaways from minimum security, but I've also done a podcast about an escape in 2006. Case number five, how to ruin your life. That escapee was a murderer. I don't know. As they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Anyway, one account of O'Neill's escape is that a guard was taking him to have his shackles and chains welded, and he broke away. Another says he was out in the yard with a group of other inmates who were just in the stockade for minor offenses. Somehow he slipped away and wasn't noticed. Listeners, this is all on post. The federal penitentiary is next to Fort Leavenworth, but not actually on the post. It's just to the west of the main part of the post. The military prison, the guardhouse, the disciplinary barracks, whatever you want to call it, is in the middle of the army post, actually not that far from where the murder happened. That's where O'Neill is right after the murder. The Missouri River, the Big Muddy, is just east of there. I don't even think it's a mile away. To the west and the north is the rest of the military reservation. Riding stables, ranges, but not much else. After that, miles and miles of country. It's a heavily wooded area and O'Neill takes off into the woods. There's a huge search. One of the cavalry units has just come back from maneuvers and they're called out to help capture him. Articles say over 500 men were on the hunt, many on horseback. It sounds like they assume he has headed west into the countryside, but in truth, he's just hunkered down not very far away. From the newspaper account in the Topeka State Journal, this is only a few hours after the shooting, so broad daylight still. Private William Oosthuser, F Troop, 15th Cavalry, sighted the fugitive standing near the shores of Merritt Lake, waiting apparently for an approaching trolley car. Seeing the cavalrymen approaching, O'Neill took to flight. His pursuer galloped down the track and around the end of the lake, close on the heels of the slayer. Between the two arms of the lake, an escape impossible, O'Neill dashed into the water up to his neck. Oosthuser covered the man, now turned at bay with his revolver.
Is my Minnie dead? gasped O'Neill, his first words since the shooting. He implored his captor to shoot him and pleaded to be allowed to die. Dashing water in his face, he lacked courage to go down. Induced at last to leave the lake and surrender, he was marched up the road toward the fort when Oosthuser was reinforced by a detachment from the Ninth Cavalry. O'Neill is in a closely guarded cell at the post guardhouse at Fort Leavenworth. He incessantly begs for implements of self-destruction. Listeners, so you can picture this, Merritt Lake is a very small lake. You can see most of it even standing right there on the shore. When I was little, my dad was stationed there, and he used to take me fishing at Merritt Lake. All we ever caught were little bluegills, but I don't know, it might be stocked with some bass or catfish. It's just not very big. It's south of the quarters on Grant Avenue, not very far. The avenue actually splits Merritt Lake into two parts. I guess it's deep enough you could drown yourself in it. Later on, O'Neill claims that he tried to escape so he could kill himself. He was headed for the Missouri River. Well, I'm calling BS on that. The river's only a mile away, if that. If I didn't get shot, I could make it to the river and jump in. You can definitely drown yourself in the Missouri River. It's huge river. O'Neill's trying to get away. He's a whiny little wimp who just shot a defenseless woman and could have hurt several more people. He'll get a lot of sympathy in the press and from his captors and even the public, but not from your host. From the rest of the article, Oosthuser, listeners, I've never heard that name before. Um, I thought maybe it was Dutch, O-O-S-T-H-U-Y-Z-E-R. So I probably said it all wrong. Has been commended for his capture and promoted to corporalship. He is a veteran of the Boer-British War, so now I'm thinking maybe he's South African, and was interpreter to General DeWitt. Just an aside, his corporalship won't last long. In just a few months, Oosthuser will be court-martialed for disobeying orders and knocked right back down to private. At the time of the murder, Private Charles Wesley O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L, most of the time just one word without the apostrophe, is 24 years old, I think. I couldn't find his exact birthday on any of the records I found for him. Spoiler alert, 
he goes to the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth in 1910. So almost all the personal information about him is from his prison records. In 1910, forms list him as age 25. So doing the math, he would be born about 1885. His home is listed as New Burnside, Illinois, a tiny rural community in the southern part of the state. The intake form at the prison reports his father was born in Illinois and is still living. There's just a dash on the form for his mother, also born in Illinois, so I'm guessing she's deceased at the time. The form says he left home at 11 and enlisted in the Army at St. Louis in 1905. He saw service in the Philippines before coming to Fort Leavenworth, where he was assigned to serve as a prison guard at the disciplinary barracks. He's still a private in 1905. Private is the lowest rank of all in the Army. In today's Army, my sense is that privates who aren't screw-ups would have moved up in the ranks after four years. But promotions are slower in times of peace, so maybe this is normal in the Army at that time. By all reports, O'Neill's commanders speak pretty highly of him. Quote, he bore a good record as a soldier until recently when he began to drink. He was sober today. Not sure what the newspaper means today is. The date of the paper is two days after the murder, so of course he's sober. As far as I could find, there were not any claims that O'Neill was drunk when he murdered Minnie, just lovesick or temporarily enraged. In jail, he's in jail in Topeka and at the guardhouse at Fort Leavenworth and then at the county jail in Leavenworth. He's remorseful. He admits guilt, duh. In a statement, he says, I didn't know that I was going to kill her until I did it. So why did you go off to Leavenworth to buy a gun before you came back and shot Minnie? If Lieutenant Hand had given me a second longer, I would have killed myself with the next bullet. I am willing to stand trial now. Well, you're going to have to. But I am going to make a fight for my life and my liberty. Escape from the fort would have been easy, but I wanted to get to the river. At the lake, I tried to die. Not very hard, but couldn't. I've already called BS on all that. He could easily have made it to the river and drowned himself if he really wanted to. I don't have much sympathy for this murderer. He's remorseful, that's probably true, but I think it's mainly because he's in jail and it's finally dawned on him what he's done. Clearly, he's trying to mitigate the circumstances so it's not first-degree murder, but killing in the heat of passion, second-degree murder. I call BS on that, too. He goes to confront Minnie. I think she tells him to get lost. I get the feeling that Minnie has been trying to cool things off for a while. Maybe that's why O'Neill is drinking. I think what happens is 
she's okay going out with him for a while. In his mugshot, he's not a bad-looking guy. He's dark-haired and blue, maybe hazel-eyed. He reminds me of the rock star Jackson Brown, kind of soulful-looking. He's not a bad catch, and Minnie's 26. In those days, that's getting close to spinsterhood. So if she's dumping him, either she's found somebody else, or my guess, she's seeing something quite alarming in his behavior. She sees him as obsessive and controlling. After the first confrontation, he goes to Leavenworth and buys the murder, the murder weapon, clearly premeditating the crime. However, what Charles is saying plays well to the press and the public and even his captors. The articles about him in the newspapers are all about how good a soldier he is, how well-behaved a prisoner he is. Do-gooders, many of them women, visit him regularly and are very impressed with him. In my opinion, the public sympathy is primarily with him. A poor lovesick soldier, led on by a loose-living French maid who toyed with his affections and drove him to murder in the heat of passion. Since the murder is committed on a military post, federal property, O'Neill is tried in federal court in Kansas City, Kansas. He could have been court-martialed by the Army, but it's not common for that to happen. He pleads guilty. He does take the stand. Were you intoxicated at the time of the killing? Harry J. Bond, the United States District Attorney, inquired. No. Why did you kill Miss Charbonneau? I was jealous of another fellow. That's my only excuse. He's found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to hang. O'Neill had asked for mercy that his sentence be just life in prison. For several months, drama swirls around whether he will hang or not and about where. This is from an article in the newspapers in connection with the conviction of Charles O'Neill on the charge of first-degree murder in the United States District Court at Kansas City, Kansas yesterday. The United States Marshal's Office faces an unpleasant situation. Judge Pollock sentenced O'Neill to be hanged, and the duty of springing the trap must be performed either by Marshal Mackey or one of his deputies. While Marshal Mackey and deputies Worcester, Need, and Biddle all have served as sheriffs in different Kansas counties, none of the four ever was called upon to hang a prisoner by reason of the unpopularity of capital punishment in Kansas. In O'Neill's case, however, 
the murder was committed upon the United States military reservation at Fort Leavenworth, and the government is not so lenient with murderers as is the state of Kansas. There is strong anti-death penalty and prison reform movements in Kansas. This story was national news, and some of the newspapers, depending on whether they are for or against capital punishment, and the issue is highlighted by many of them. Some papers report there has never been a legal hanging in Kansas. As that implies, there are hangings in Kansas. They're just not legal. They're vigilante justice. And actually, it's not true that there haven't been any legal hangings. I know of one for sure, the Leavenworth Ripper case that I did in my very first podcast. The culprit in that case was hung legally in Leavenworth at the county jail in 1890. I believe there also was a legal hanging, something to do with the Civil War, right after the war, maybe 1865 or 1866. But there is definitely an anti-death penalty sentiment in Kansas. The law on the books at the time, it does have capital punishment, but it has to be confirmed by a signature from the governor of Kansas. And through many decades, no Kansas governor has ever signed anybody's death warrant. So to me, that shows there definitely is a pretty good-sized movement against the death penalty in Kansas. That trend We'll see that all throughout Kansas history, even up to now. Understandably, military officials are reluctant to have O'Neill, a former soldier, hung at Fort Leavenworth. That could have been done. And I did another case where they do hang quite a number of prisoners, mostly in the 50s at the military prison at Fort Leavenworth. Ultimately, the federal marshals will decide to have a gallows built in the yard at the Leavenworth County Jail and use the services of a jailer who has some experience with hanging. Petitions circulate to have the sentence commuted, which would have to be done by the President of the United States, William Howard Taft, at the time. As it turns out, there will be no need for the gallows. In May 1910, President Taft commutes the sentence of Private Charles O'Neill to life in prison. On March 28, 1910, jailers deliver him to the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary to serve a life sentence. Little research aside here, the U.S. National Archives has a branch in Kansas City, Missouri. The staff there is extremely helpful. It's located at 400 West Pershing Road, if you are interested in stopping by. I'll put the link out there. They specialize in 
genealogical information, and other historical documents. Special thanks. I'd like to send a shout out to archivist Elizabeth Burns, who helped me go through Charles Wesley O'Neill's file from the Leavenworth Federal Prison and sent me the digital version of his mugshots. I'll put the mugshot and the links in the show notes. Now, about the file on Charles O'Neill. It's very interesting. By all accounts, Charles O'Neill is a model inmate at the federal prison. He has several correspondents who support him and offer to write recommendations for him when he comes up for parole, which happens in 1925 when he has served 15 years on his life sentence. Even the jailers and the warden support his parole, the warden writing that O'Neill received commendations for helping save others when there were fires at the prison. Listeners, fires in prison are a thing back in the day. Um, For one thing, everybody smoked, plus fires were sometimes set as diversions for escapes and other activities. Interestingly, when O'Neill is granted parole, he is assigned to serve out the parole period in Florida, in spite of the fact that his parole officer N. R. Timmons works in Leavenworth, attached to the federal prison there. At first, I thought maybe O'Neill has family in Florida, but that's not the case. His family is still in the Midwest. However, there is an organization called Volunteers of America that sponsors parolees and provides employment for them. It's a very respected charitable organization with a prison reform mission and roots in the Salvation Army. Today, it's still a thriving charity whose mission appears to have evolved over the years. This is from their website. Volunteers of America is a church without walls. Since 1896, we have answered God's call to transform lives by reaching and uplifting America's most vulnerable. We do this through a ministry of service led by more than 16,000 professionals working across the country to touch the lives of 1.5 million people each year. We seek to serve the needs of the whole person, mind, body, and spirit by bringing together the Human Service Agency and the Church. We provide assistance to people of all faiths and never require those we serve or those we employ to participate in worship services or to acknowledge specific beliefs. Yet from our very beginning, volunteer of America's work has been and continues to be motivated by God's love. We have answered the call to be a ministry of service that sets Volunteers of America apart. The website is www.voa.org. According to Wiki, VOA was founded by social reformers Ballington Booth and his wife Maud Ballington Booth. 
Mr. Ballington Booth was the son of the founder of the Salvation Army. Apparently, there was a split with the Salvation Army. Maud and Ballington left the organization and established Volunteers of America. In the 1900s, the organization began an expansive philanthropic program that included employment bureaus, cooperative stores, medical dispensaries, distribution of clothes, women's sewing classes, Thanksgiving meals, reading rooms, fresh air camps, and other establishment. It looks like the Florida branch that oversees the parole program in Florida in 1925 is run by State Superintendent Major L. A. Odom, under the leadership of Colonel A.C. Wright, regimental officer, with Adjutant Thomas Payne, secretary. At least that's what the letterhead shows. It also features a picture of Mrs. Maud Ballington Booth calling her, quote, the world's greatest prison reformer, unquote. The letterhead touts Hope Hall, a statewide interdenominational work for the reestablishment of released prisoners. The address is a post office box in Jacksonville, Florida. Now, listeners, I am naturally suspicious of, well, really everything. I'll just say that anybody can print a letterhead. It could be that this group is genuine and this is all perfectly above board. But I may dig into this more at some point. Sorry, listeners, that's my dog Cujo. There's probably a squirrel outside. I think he stopped now. One thing that gives me pause is that parole officer Timmons keeps having to write to the group to remind them to send the monthly report about how O'Neill is doing on parole. Ostensibly, he's fine. There are monthly reports, even though they're somewhat tardy, from August 1925 when he gets to Florida continuing for the next few months. He's reportedly employed by a firm called Payne and Schiff. Interesting that the adjutant listed on the letterhead for Hope House is Thomas Payne. O'Neill is a laborer for a cleaning company and maybe doing some construction, it says in the reports. His salary is $100 a month, about $1,440 today. He lives at a boarding house operated by Mrs. D.C. Washington in Live Oak, Florida. I was a little surprised there aren't any letters from O'Neill himself. To me, I would think that would be part of the procedure for being on parole, to write letters yourself to your parole officer. I can't tell 
if Timmons is suspicious about what's going on or not. Looking at all the correspondence, my impression is that he was conscientious about trying to do the right things for the parolees and for the public. I do have to say that it all seems very lax to me, the whole system. Certainly not how things operate today. At any rate, apparently O'Neill is being supervised while on parole in Florida until June 10th. 1926, when Officer Timmons receives a telegram. Live Oak, Florida. Please mail me full record of Charles Wesley O'Neill, who I understand on parole. Name of relatives, if you have them. He was killed here on May 15th last. Also, if Thomas Payne was a former prisoner there, white, 6 feet, 35 to 38 years old, 120 pounds, wears glasses. Payne came here with O'Neill. Think implicated in killing. W. H. Lyle, Sheriff. Listeners, I went, oh my gosh, when I read that at the archives. Sheriff Lyle is the sheriff of Suwannee County, Florida. If you went up the middle of Florida, from the southern tip almost to the northern border, that's where Suwannee County is. It's not quite west enough to be in the panhandle, but it's close. To me, it's interesting that the name Thomas Paine is on the Volunteers of America letterhead sent to Parole Officer Timmons. Is that a mistake? If not, is Paine a former parolee now trusted to be the secretary of the group? It's all very concerning to me. Plus, Thomas Paine, and it's the same spelling, P-A-I-N-E, is a very famous name in American history. He wrote the popular pamphlet Common Sense in 1776, which is credited as a huge inspiration for the American Revolution. Is that really this suspect's name? Needless to say, there is no Thomas Paine in federal prison records, at least. Officer Timmons responds by sending O'Neill's mugshot and fingerprints, and he requests confirmation of the identity. As far as I could tell, he never really gets that although he does notify relatives and friends of his and friends of his to tell them about the death or the suspected death of Charles O'Neill quote we are today in receipt of a communication reporting the death of one Charles O'Neill at Jasper Hamilton County Florida Hamilton County is just north of Suwannee County Although a positive identification has not yet been made, it is believed this man 
is our register number, 7106. That's um, O'Neill's prison number. Who was committed to this institution in 1910 to serve a life sentence and who was paroled July 24, 1925? We are informed that this man's body was pulled from the Suwannee River in Hamilton County, Florida by Sheriff A.F. Hancock and buried in the woods near where it was found. So, no autopsy, it sounds like. I wonder how they're so sure he's murdered. I'm guessing a gunshot wound or he looks all beaten up, knife wound, who knows. A few days later, Mr. O'Neill, having failed to show up at his boarding house at Live Oak, Florida, Mrs. D.C. Washington, proprietress, hearing of the strange man being found and buried in an adjoining county, requested Sheriff Lyle of Swanee County to exhume same for investigation, which she identified as Charles O'Neill. His body was removed to Live Oak, Florida, and buried in the cemetery there by Mrs. Washington. Unquote. From later letters, it sounds like Timmons never gets a positive ID or even much more information from the sheriffs, either one of them. I couldn't find anything in the local newspapers about the body or the case, but it could be there's just nothing online. Major Odom who supposedly, at least, runs the parolee program in Florida, writes that he talked to Mrs. Washington on the phone. She advised that she was thoroughly convinced that the remains of the man was that of Mr. O'Neill, that while she did not see the remains, the same being in such a bad condition those attending would not permit it, but that she identified his belt buckle pins and little personal belongings, and was so sure of this that she had the same brought to Live Oak and laid in her family burial grounds. She did state in a letter to us, however, that his coat, in which he kept his papers, life insurance, probably money, etc., had not been found. There are some follow-up letters from family, Charles's brother, for example, and his uncle, but nothing about what happened as far as solving the murder of Charles O'Neill. So there's an interesting little mystery there. I may look into it more sometime. I'm very curious about it. Or if any of you listeners live in that part of Florida, it might be interesting to look into the case. There might be news stories or other historical info out there. I'd love to hear from you if you find anything out. As I often say, my sympathies are totally with murder victims. Minnie Charbonneau didn't do anything to deserve to get murdered. She got some measure of justice, but she never got a chance to really live her life to the fullest. And that's all on Charles O'Neill. But I will admit, listeners, it's a little sad that he seems to have turned his life around. And then 
gets murdered not long after he gets out of prison. In reality, we can say he pretty much served a life sentence for Minnie's murder. There's no room for wild speculation in Minnie's murder, but there could be for O'Neill's. I guess one question is whether the body pulled out of the Suwannee River was really Charles O'Neill. I don't see a motive for him to murder somebody and make the body look like it's his. O'Neill's free from prison. He can just serve out his parole and be a free man. It's possible he killed a man in a fight and was afraid he'd go back to jail, maybe. I think it's likely that he really was murdered by another parolee, possibly, or somebody. I'm guessing this Thomas Paine person the sheriff suspects is missing. That's why he's a suspect, so probably murdered by him. What if the parolee program is some kind of scam? Listeners, I have trouble thinking like a criminal, but maybe something like parolees paying off somebody in charge of the program to pretend like they're super like they're supervising parolees, but they're really just letting them run off or even using them to do illegal things? Or maybe they're using the parolees like almost like slave laborers, threatening to have their parole revoked if they say anything? That's some of my speculation for what it's worth. You may have other ideas how somebody could use a program like that to make money illegally. It's also possible the murder was part of a robbery. O'Neill's fellow fellow parolees may not be the most upstanding citizens. When O'Neill left the prison, he signed for his personal effects, which included over $100 in cash and a certificate of deposit for $800. What if he didn't leave the CD in the bank but cashed it in? Then he'd have the equivalent of 13000 U.S. dollars in today's money. The wrong kind of person might easily see that as a very good motive for murder. Or maybe he was back to his old behavior and paying unwanted attention to a local woman. There really are lots of possibilities. Whatever the motive, I think the suspect described in the telegram, Thomas Paine or whoever that really was, murdered Charles Wesley O'Neill, threw him in the river, and fled. Most likely getting away with murder. Minnie Charbonneau was not sent back to Vermont to her family for burial. Her grave is at Fort Leavenworth National Cemetery. She has a listing on www.findagrave.com. Mrs. Washington did indeed have the body of Charles O'Neill buried 
at Live Oak Cemetery in Florida. His grave is also listed on Find a Grave. For this episode, listeners, my sources were mainly O'Neill's prison file. Again, thanks to the Kansas City National Archives. You're doing a great job. As well as area newspapers from the time of the murder from Leavenworth and Topeka. Those cities had several newspapers at the time, which I accessed at online subscription sites that I use newspapers.com, genealogybank.com, and newspaperarchive.com. I'm guessing those newspapers were all absorbed into one for each city that's still published today, the Leavenworth Times and the Topeka Capital Journal. And of course, I googled and wikied and went through genealogy sites, mainly ancestry.com, and find a grave. The links are in the show notes. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends about the podcast. If you could leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. Even critical feedback is appreciated. You can email me at prisoncitymurders, all one word, at gmail.com or comment on the cases at the podcast website, prisoncitymurders.blubrry.net. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars. Mm -hmm.